the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In our last episode, we heard how faith communities can simultaneously be a source of comfort, but also a source of distress for people with different gender identities or sexual orientations. We continue that conversation this week and explore some constructive solutions. Well, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us today, and we'd like to thank our wonderful uh, collection of guests who are going to give to us uh, their perspectives, their wisdom, their experience in addressing this issue. I'd like to introduce first uh, pastors Joanne Enquist and Kari Lipke, both of Gethsemane Lutheran Church in Seattle, uh, Father David Strong of the Spirit of Christ Catholic Church, Imam Jamal Rahman of the Interfaith Amigos, and Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, who is the Scholar-in-Residence at the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue in New York City. I'd like to thank each of you for joining us today and agreeing to help us better understand the implications and the realities of uh, the topic of the LGBTQ community and the challenges that they face. Uh, we were talking, we left off in our conversation last week, talking about evolution, if you will, of attitudes. And I think perhaps a place to begin is that over the last few years, we've seen an increase in nationalism, we've seen an increase in bigotry, hate, uh, hate crimes, at virtually anybody who's perceived as being other. And of course, that description of otherness could change with whoever is doing the perception. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you, how has that influenced, that sort of political social reality, how has that influenced you and particularly your relationship with and ministerial work with the LGBTQ community? And whoever would like to tackle that first. You know, maybe I, I can go first. Uh, you know, there have been some silver linings ever since the 2016 elections where there was a rise of uh, that nationalism, bigotry, uh, racism. What has happened is that Muslim groups, uh, both individually and collectively, uh, have been perforce uh, made to work with other groups and organizations that are marginalized, oppressed, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, uh, LGBTQ community, they've been forced to really connect and work together. And that connection, that collaboration has brought about a change. They're beginning to get to know the other. So for the first time, we are finding people in mosques who are willing to talk and collaborate with LGBTQ community because the situation has made them do that. As a result of that, uh, there is happening a change of heart. Uh, you know, scripture has not changed, but the understanding of scripture has changed. There's a wonderful article where this uh, writer talks about the big changes happening in America with all the communities with regard to the LGBTQ community. And the last sentence is that, you know, uh, scripture has not changed, but the meaning of scripture has changed because of social relations. So that connection is very critical. 
I just really couldn't agree more with that. And I think um, there's certainly some fear uh, in the LGBTQ plus community about whether or not there's going to be further oppression down the road um, and that's going to erase some of the gains that we've made or or not. There's just so much uncertainty. But my work over these last four years has really been about working with folks in the in the queer community to broaden our awareness of what our our siblings are going through um, and making connections to our own historical trauma, our own uh, battle for acceptance and, and making connections to what's happening to our siblings in the Muslim faith or our siblings who are black and brown lives uh, or just, just wh the, whoever's bearing the most oppression, our siblings who are immigrants, refugees and asylum seekers, really working with the LGBTQ plus community to say, how can we step up on behalf of others now who are experiencing such terrible um, oppression in this time? And how can we relate and connect our experiences to what they're going through? And how can we also say there are parts of our experiences that don't come close to what they're going through? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a way that we need to be humble about how we have we have intersections of privilege so i may be you know somebody may be a gay man and identify as a gay man but they're also uh cisgender and white and they have to understand how those those intersections of privilege are functioning so that they can be a better ally or advocate for people who are different from them so beautiful and uh allyship is i think intrinsically awkward because it's predicated on people being dehumanized. If other people weren't being oppressed, you wouldn't need other people um, you know, to speak up. And I think that that awkwardness often uh, itself is a deterrent. Um, I think a year ago, it, most uh, white folks would feel uncomfortable holding up a sign that says Black Lives Matter because it's not their lane. Um, but I think it became more awkward to be silent. And, um, and I think more and more people are feeling that like, I, I, can't, I can't be passive anymore. Um, and there is this kind of strange space of not having, let's say, all of the socially constructed privileges, but being a lot better off than most. And then like there's this invitation uh, and a temptation to perhaps align up uh, with those who really are at the top. And we've seen that a lot within religious circles and white supremacy and uh, hypernationalism, where you can ally up and say like, you know, I still have a voice where most people listen to it. Um, and so what am I going to use? What am I gonna do with that voice? Um, and I think that becoming uh, for people to feel that I don't need to understand the struggle. Uh, like I don't need to understand what it means to be trans. I don't need to understand what it's like to, to try to walk the streets as a person of color uh, in, this, in this country to know that like uh, people getting shot by police is like, un it's unacceptable. Um, and so like, there is, I think, a space of being able to say like, okay, I don't actually need to understand any of it to understand that any sort of dehumanization uh, and oppression is completely unacceptable. So that I think has uh, shifted tremendously only because it got so bad. It is so bad. I think uh, there's another intersectionality that happens. And for me as a Christian, as a black Christian, I look at the church and I see the, the intersectionality of racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and how all of those have been justified by people who call themselves Christians. And those of us who are Christians who 
want to build a different kind of intersectionality have to keep visible, keep speaking, because we can't let that be the only voice. Uh, and that I believe that on, on the side of goodness and justice and mercy that we hear of our God, uh, that we're on the right side, not of history only, but of faith. And we have to keep telling that message that this God is for everybody. When we talk about reactions uh, from various groups of society, uh, be it employers, be it neighbors, be it just other people in the community, uh, there also comes uh, the relationship within family. And sometimes that has to be very challenging. Uh, what has been your experience with the personal costs that individuals have faced because of a lack of support of their families? What do you think is important for them to recognize as you would go to counsel them? This is a big problem in Muslim countries. Uh, people who are of that community, LGBTQ community, uh, they cannot come out uh, in the open. A lot of suicides, uh, I know personal, uh, personal situations, but also something very uh, common is that uh, the people who are, for example, uh, gay or lesbian, uh, go ahead and get married with someone of the opposite sex, be normal. And by doing this, uh, you'll become healed. Uh, this is happening uh, quite often in, in Muslim countries. And um, uh, this of course leads to a lot of depression, a uh, lot of you know, uh, unfulfillment in life. And again, uh, uh, leading to suicides. So that is a very big problem. So um, there's wonderful saying by the prophet Muhammad who said, you know, when you see this kind of oppression, injustice, oppression of the others, he said, please use your hands, meaning do something. It could be in your own family, your own extended family. If you cannot do that, use your mouth, speak out, tell the truth, be brave. If you cannot do that, yes, then pray from your heart for the others. But the prophet said in this instance, this is the weakest form of faith. So for me as a Muslim, I encourage my Muslim brothers and sisters to start in their own extended family to overcome uh, the, their condition biases and listen to the words of the Prophet Muhammad and practice it. I, I, the biggest struggle I still have with folks is that people call me about not being accepted by their family, I'm particularly finding that in African-American families sometimes, but also among immigrant families and individuals who come to my congregation. And it really tears up my heart. And so what I try to do is teach people one, learn to accept and love yourself. And when you begin to live out authentically that, uh, you'll find ways to uh, be yourself to your family and accept even the consequences. In my own personal life, my dad was a Pentecostal minister. At some point I had to just say, this is who I am and I love you, and I hope you can love me back. But if not, I may not be a part of your life. But our goal always is to get people, get people to connect with their families if it's helpful, wholesome, and built in holiness. I think that's uh, in the work that I do, there's generally two different kind of camps. One is uh, queer, gender queer youth, 
uh, you know, thinking about themselves in relationship to God, where try to remind them that God doesn't put extra people in this world. God doesn't make mistakes. God loves us more than we can possibly love ourselves. Um, and the second, which is a growing space, which is uh, of people who are, let's say, married uh, to somebody of the opposite gender and identify as straight, and then their partner transitions. Um, and then how are they able to kind of contain or continue having their own uh, gender, uh, let's say sexual orientation to somebody uh, whose gender presentation is, is in conflict. And I think as that space kind of expands and hopefully so does the language, it's really important to remind people that, you know, love is love and the uh, language that we have is always going to be more limiting than the experiences. The experiences are always more expansive than the way in which we can articulate them. Um, and so, so part of it is uh, that, you know, again, we don't need to understand things, but seeing it from from historically the places of negativity, that it's easy to understand how somebody who's queer, who marries straight, they're married to somebody of the opposite gender, that doesn't make them less queer. So too, somebody who's married to somebody of the same gender doesn't make them less straight. So it, it's this is, I think, a new space uh, for people who are looking for ways of trying to understand and hold the complexities of these identities and looking for language. And so part of, uh, part of I think, the advice in general is to let people know that it does get better. And where we are now is a lot better than, you know, even four years ago in most places. Uh, but certainly if you look about how, uh, how much uh, change has happened in so quickly, there's reasons to be optimistic. So like to be part of the change uh, is, is a great way of trying to cope. For me, I always offer that I'm willing to talk to family members who are needing to be brought along. And I also cannot emphasize how important chosen family is in, in a way for this community. We know we know how to form families out of uh, all kinds of love bonds that uh, that are just, it, it's just a, one of the blessings of being part of the queer community is that sense of chosen family. I would still say that um, putting, putting parents, siblings, other birth family relatives in contact with people who they trust, who you also know to be, um, Affirming or at least tolerant uh, is a really good uh, is a really good strategy. So, connecting them with a pastor in town who they might listen to, um, who you know to be accepting or tolerant, and or connecting them to uh, PFLAG uh, just as a learning resource or or whatnot. But but also to lean really hard into that chosen family and to let that family that chosen family love you, support you celebrate with you and just be there for you in lots of different ways. We've talked about the situation where there is a lack of support on the side of family on one hand, but what about the flip side when a family is supportive and say a mother, father, sibling uh, faces difficulty from their friends or others in the community? How do you counsel them and are there any particular resources that you'd recommend for say out in our viewing or listening audience, uh, a parent or a sibling that faces that sort of challenge. You know, in, in North America, uh, things have progressed quite a lot for Muslims. We now actually have imams who are gay and who are imams at uh, mosques. There's one in Toronto we work with, that, and that's called uh, Unity Mosque. There's one in Washington, D.C., a fairly big one, uh, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles. So there are a lot of resources available. And by now, there are a number of organizations, which I'll be happy to give it to uh, Brother Jeff, you can put on the 
uh, in the program, resources people can, can go to. Uh, so that's happening a lot. And one quick thing I want to say, you know, which is a, a very important fact is that in the past, we used to tell people, people who are gay or lesbian, please do the inner jihad. Jihad means effort, the inner inconvenient work of becoming a better human being, overcoming this uh, addiction, as we would call it. But now the, the mantra is, let me, I'm not gay, how about me doing the inner jihad? Me doing the work of overcoming my conditioned prejudices and biases. So that mantra is going around and that's beautiful. What other suggestions might you have for people that find themselves in that situation as parents or siblings? Kari mentioned before the Reconciling in Christ community that the Lutheran, uh, the Lutherans have developed over the years. And I think there are similar groups in each of our traditions that will provide these kinds of resources that, that ask, uh, that ask uh, people to, to come with their questions, their uh, mix of experiences that can also put them in touch with uh, human beings who can listen and talk with with one another. Sometimes it's a matter of simply finding the connections that can be of support. I think one of the pieces of this uh, COVID time that has been really positive in my experience has been the way it has um, expanded the reach that many of us can have so that persons who are living in more isolated places without uh, without the same kind of community that's ready to jump into this, are finding it easier to be able to reach out and, and to make those connections. And as we, as we learn to have more of these conversations online, I think just as a whole, our communities are being enriched by uh, multi-faith uh, engagement, by reflection on our own situations and our questions and the, and the struggles that we're having. So, I'm really grateful for those organizations who can continue to point us in the right direction of, of resources and allies and, and really bringing, uh, as, as Jamal said, the, that intentionality of doing your own inner work. Uh, what, what makes it possible to withstand the assaults that are lobbed at us from our neighbors and friends and and even faith community members is that having done that inner work that says, no, I, I am confident in a God who loves, whose, whose very identity has been as liberator to the people. And, and I'm going to be able to resource myself in that and, and uh, respond to others in that same way. I would also, uh, I serve on the state council for PFLAG. We have 13 chapters throughout the state of Washington from Battleground to Spokane and points in between. Uh, this year we committed to ensure that all of our chapters can have Zoom so folks can find support in the midst of the pandemic. And it is still a great resource for us in our state. It's, um... And in insular communities that perhaps don't have access to, to the internet um, and there's the most intolerance, uh, having support groups uh, were able to people, people able to meet kind of in private are, have been really essential and unfortunately because of COVID, 
um, it's just exacerbated a really horrific situation. Um, so part of the work is, is not just creating space for, for those in particular who need it, uh, but really changing the world that you don't need to have safe spaces, that the, the world is a safe space. Um, and so when we think about systemic change, um, you know, each one of us is in like a, a sliver of a tradition, which is part of a much broader world. So the interfaith work that, that we're doing right here is really important. Um, you know, I try to publish, I've published about 100 articles, and I've tried to publish in as many different types of interfaith spaces and in secular spaces and in academic spaces, because when we when we can change the dominant culture, um, so then it's less reliant on specific local resources and really like it's elevated the world to a place uh, that's more holy, more godly. In the interim, you know, uh, I think certainly within Judaism, but in many faith-based traditions, the, the 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 faith that God as the omnipresent, God is everywhere all the time. Uh, you know, King David writes, even in the valley of the shadow of death, right? There won't be fear because Atimadu, because he's walking in good company. If you can, if a person is able to feel like they're walking with God and they're walking in good company. So I think that's that's the other part. That until the world is able to get, you know, kind of elevated, trying to be able to feel that sense of the divinity in close proximity can be uh, deeply comforting in the moment. Several of you have brought up the term ally. I think it's uh, to be expected that a number of people watching or listening to this program are asking themselves, what can I do to be of help? Uh, how can I offer friendship, support, or to be an effective uh, ally? Uh, what would your suggestions be? Well, one that builds on the last question a bit for me is not to rush through that process of, of for family members and friends, not to rush through that process of um, touching into your own pain at, at what your child or friend or other loved one is exposed to on more of a regular basis. Um, it's, I think it's really part of the inner work and it's an important piece of it to say, as an ally, I want I can't experience what you experience, but because but because I love you, I can I can spend time kind of thinking about my own pain at what you go through and empathizing in that way. So not to really rush through that process, but to dwell in it a little bit and to feel it. I would like to just emphasize through metaphors. I, I love poetry and metaphor. The value of allies of uh, collaboration through communities. You know, Rumi says, a wall standing alone is useless, but if you add to it other walls, it can support a roof, even a granary. Only when ink joins with a pen can the blank paper say something. And I tell all my Muslim brothers and sisters, you know, who don't pay attention to this issue, they want to avoid it or deny it. I say, this is going to make our society dysfunctional because a, a chain, is only as strong as its weakest link. If we don't take care of it, we shall all suffer. If one part of my body is in pain, it affects my entire body. So it's not just a question of doing a favor or being nice. It's a matter of our survival and our society flourishing. We need to take care of one another. In a parallel racism, we often say, we need white allies to speak to other white people about racism. In this movement, we need our straight and cis allies to speak to other folks. Don't take our voice, but speak when you see wrong and when you see people 
saying things that are not appropriate. And, and so that's a, a great role that an ally can go in a space and speak to some people that won't listen to me. Yeah, theologically, I think within the Jewish tradition, if we wanna have a relationship with God as a parent, uh, then we need to be able to love all of God's children as our siblings. One of the ways in which we interact with God is uh, through God's creations. Um, so I think there's an aspect of this that, that can provide some sensitivity uh, for folks who don't appreciate uh, that kind of this dynamic as uh, on a human level, I think thinking about it from a, from a God space, uh, our tradition teaches that the emptiness in the Genesis narrative, that chaos was actually God's loneliness. Um, and that I see like the divine revelation as God's coming out speech. And then with the sin of the golden calf, uh, you know, we kind of deny God's identity and we force God back into the closet because God says, you know, I am the one God that created. And now you're, you know, kind of denying and erasing that identity by salt, uh, serving false gods. I think that there's, a, there's an aspect of this that can kind of transcend some of the complexities of the political aspects by realizing how deep this is theologically. Um, and then also just on, on a practical level, listening obviously is, is really important. Um, but within the, the Jewish tradition, um, the word for ally really comes from a level of attachment. It's similar to the Latin, to bind. And what it means is to take the resources of the privilege and to attach them to the people uh, that, that, that can use it. Uh, it's also coincidentally, uh, it's not coincidentally, but uh, it also happens to be the word in Hebrew for author is a machaber. Chaber, uh, we normally translate as, as friend, but it's the word for ally because it's, it's the same partnership of attaching uh, one to the other for, for, for greater good. Um, I think it's almost impossible that people will be departing from having watched this program and the one the week before uh, in the same place where they first entered, listening to all of you speak and share your perspectives and your wisdom. Uh, I would thank each of you so much for joining us for these two programs. And I thank all of you out there for joining us as well and hope you'll join us in our next edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.